chapter 9, verse 1, Paul begins with a question, am I not an apostle? Let's just pause there for a little bit because that is the whole contention of the entire chapter. Paul is so irritated because nobody considers him to be an apostle. And he's having to defend himself. Here's a man who planted this church. Here's a man who poured his life into this church. Here's a man who's been kicked through the streets like a soccer ball. He's working harder than any of the other apostles. He's going to have to correct the other apostles. He's smarter than the other apostles. He's more educated than the other apostles. He's done more, you know, he's, he's suffered more than all the other, uh, other apostles. He's done all of this. He's going to be ultimately beheaded. And we're going to see some of the things that he's endured to do this. And they're questioning whether or not he's an apostle. Barnabas has testified to it. The church has testified to it. Others have testified to it. They're questioning this authority. And Paul says, am I not an apostle? Really? Is this, is this where we're going with this? He says, am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You wouldn't have a church if I hadn't planted it. I came to you. I I was sent out. I was the called out ones. I have come to you. I have poured out my heart to you. I've labored with you. I've been imprisoned on your behalf. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? What he's saying is, and this is where he goes. He says, look. All the other apostles, the church supports them and pays for them. They get to travel with their wife. They get to travel and they're taken care of. Their needs are met while they impart everything that the Lord taught them. He says, do, do we have no right to eat and drink? Meaning you, you're not, do, do I not have a right to receive an income in relation to what I'm doing? And that's his statement. He says, do I not have a, a right to eat and drink? Verse five, do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? They're all taken care of. They all have a stipend. They get to take care of their families. When he says wife, he means family. They all get that opportunity. Do I not have that right? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Barnabas is the one who came and found me. Barnabas is the one who presented me before the church. Barnabas has testified to this. He's seen the miracles. All of you know what's changed in me. I was once persecuting you. Now I'm supporting you. I am fully in. I've given my life to this and we're not allowed to receive a stipend. We're not allowed to be supported. You're questioning my authority. Is that, is that how it works? Uh, And then he says, verse seven, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who who goes to war at his own expense? You know, we're going to, we're going to take on, you know, ISIS. Uh, but anyone who's going to go fight has to buy their own uniform, their own gun. They have to go and do their own deal. No, no, no. We gather together as a nation to do a specific work. And as a church, we gather together to support those who would do the work of an evangelist, of a prophet, of a teacher. Uh, and, and he says, you don't go to work. You don't go to war at your own expense. And he asks this question, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? You know, we, you, Christ is, is, is the vine, we're the branches, and, and we're grafted into him, and we produce much fruit. And who's not allowed, as, as they cultivate a vineyard, to eat from the fruit of which they've planted these, they have, they have tended to them, they've cared for them. They're not allowed to feed from that. We gather on Wednesdays, we gather on Sundays. Uh, my job is to rightly divide the word of truth. I, I, I gain a living from this. This is what I do. It's fascinating. I, I gain a living by doing nothing other than speaking. I mean, it, I, I, can't, I can't think of anything more Irish than that. I am an Irishman. And it's my mouth that causes people, you know, my, my, my articulate ability 
uh, that, that brings income to my family. But really, we're, we, we present the gospel, and it's the only book in the world that changes us. We don't, you know, we don't change it, it changes us. And we watch lives change by simply preaching of the gospel. We have to rightly divide the word of truth. We're, we're, we're held to a higher standard where our children are more strictly judged. Uh, there, there's a lot that comes with being a minister of the gospel, but there's also benefit that comes with being a minister of the gospel. And Paul's laying this out. He says, whoever goes to ward his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends to a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock. The church is, is supported by by those in the body of Christ who give. I know that's a shocker for some of you. You're thinking, how did this chair so comfortable? The air conditioning, it's lovely. The bathrooms are clean. How does this all happen? Because the people who sit in those chairs give. And what do they give? Well, that's dependent on where you are with the Lord. Uh, you know, the, the scriptures speak of a tithe, which is a tenth of your income. You say, well, is that gross or is it net? It depends on what you want to be blessed by. That didn't work either. Um, and then people say, well, we're under grace. We're not under the law. Yes, we are. And I'm fully agreement of that. But remember, grace is greater than the law. So if you want to go that way, work on that one. Still not laughing. <laughs> we're dealing with money tonight. People are getting frustrated. But the church is supported. And, and never let your need be known. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. We never express a need. But the idea is we're, we're supported by the giving of the congregation. And that's how it works. And, and this is what Paul's saying. Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? All the staff is supported by the offerings of the fellowship. And our job is to rightly divide the word of truth, tend to the flock, care for the flock, minister to the flock, and continue to establish these things. And Paul's laying this out. He says, do I say these things as a mere man, verse 8, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it the oxen God is concerned about? So let's take a look. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offer of the altar offerings of the altar, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And he lays out out of Deuteronomy this passage that says, you don't muzzle the ox while he treads the grain. The responsibility is we're doing the work, we get to eat of the fruit of that work. And, and we're supported by that work. Um, and God's not concerned with the oxen, he's concerned with the shepherd. Or does he say it all together, verse 10, for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? And what he's saying is, look, you support all these guys. Why wouldn't you support us? This church is here because of what we've done. God has used us. God has called us. Um, this is, this is what we do. And so this is, this is the economy of the church. This is how it operates. This is how it functions. And they're saying, well, why should we even help him while he's in prison? As Paul is answering their questions, why should we even be concerned with this man? Who is he? And he's not even an apostle. We don't need to, and on and on and on. And, and the church is always going to have those that would question, the expenses, question the vision, question the direction. And that's, under, that's understandable. If, if, I, if I take a turn in doctrine, currently, 
Calvary chapels are not um, uh, Calvinistic, nor are they Arminian. Uh, Calvary chapels are what we call biblicists. Um, we, we, we don't believe in, in total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, preservation of the saints. We don't believe that Christ's death on the cross was limited only to those that he would choose. We believe that, that the gospel's for the world and that all can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, we believe his death on the cross is sufficient for all who would call upon the name of the Lord, but only efficient for those who do. And, and uh, we believe that all can be saved. That, that's the position of Calvary Chapel. A, um, a strict Calvinist would say, no, there's, there's those that have been fashioned unto destruction and those that have been fashioned unto you know, righteousness. And Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated, and which is interesting, that's quoted in Romans, and that was after they both died and God picked that. So it's interesting how they would put that together. But I, I say that because if I'm to lean towards Calvinism, and all of you have been raised in the Calvary Chapel Biblicist doctrine, and you go, wait a minute, I'm not really comfortable with this. Or better yet, the pastor's gone a little too political, and I don't like it. Understandable. And one of uh, uh, Craig's his, his grandfather's quotes that I love is God takes the variable of man's personality and the absolute of his word to make a message unique unto itself. So, so the word remains absolute, but the personality is different. And some of you go, I like your personality. You're funny. Others go, I don't think the gospel should have that kind of humor. I don't. And I, and I've, in, in my 20 plus years of ministry, I've had people come and go and some like it and some don't. And I didn't ask him to come and I don't ask him to leave. I get it. But wherever you're called, bloom where you're planted. Pick that church and support that church. Don't shop it and move from place to place and pick fly poop out of pepper while you're, you know, finding every fault to justify why you don't support a ministry. Pick a place and stay there and engage in it. And, and while they're treading and while, you know, the Bible says, share all good things with those who instruct you. And while they're doing this, this is our responsibility and we're to be partakers. And, and Paul says, not only uh, do others have this right over you, even, we even more, we planted this church. We planted this church, Paul says, of him and Barnabas. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endured all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Look at that word, nevertheless, in verse 12. It's in the middle of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. What Paul did is he decided on his own to not take an offering and not to be supported by the church. He was a tent maker because he knew that as he would plant these, he would go from city to city, do some tents, make some tents, make some money, and then go to the next. And he knew that he would always be questioned in his apostleship. And so he decided never to make money an issue, right? And that's, that's one of the things the Lord showed me early on in the ministry is I, money's just not an issue. I don't know who gives and I don't care who gives. I don't want to see who gives. It's irrelevant to me. I don't even want to receive an offering because when you receive an offering, it's interesting. The first time, the very first Sunday I preached at the church, I forgot to take the offering and they bring the offering forward and they put it in the front and all the elders would come over and they pray over it. And it is an act of worship and it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's very wise in some regards, but for me, uh, I remember that Sunday, I forgot to do it. And what was interesting is between the first Sunday and that Sunday, all the loose cash was less. 
because, you know, the offering bag would go by and they'd be like, oh, and they'd reach in and, you know, tip the Lord and it'd go by. And I realized when the scripture says, don't give out of guilt or compulsion, when the bag would come by, you'd be compelled to give. The Bible says purpose beforehand what you're going to give. You're part of the fellowship. You know that, that you don't muzzle the ox. You know that the lights don't go on magically. So you purpose beforehand. You go before the Lord. You're prayerful about it. You give to the, the first fruits to the Lord. You lay that out. And I thought, you know, Lord, we're just going to put boxes in the back and just leave it at that. And do you realize what the years we've been here, it's always gone up with the exception of when we moved in 2007, we had a dip because 40% of our congregation stayed there. But within a year, we were back moving in the same direction. Our needs have always been met. And if you take the, the gross income of the church and you divide it by the number of checks and even the attendance, which is fascinating, it, it, it works out to a tithe. People are tithing. Now, some people give more, some people are 20, 30%. Some people, you know, uh, their, their 10% exceeds, you know, what we would give because they make more, but it balances out. That doesn't mean everybody's tithing, but it means on average, it seems as though folks are taking a 10th of their income and they're, they're putting it towards the Lord. And as you, you do this, this is how the church flourishes. This is how we operate. And Paul is purposely saying, I'm not going to allow you to support me. I'm going to do this on my own because I have one issue that, that is remedied by me not taking a gift. And that one issue is, go back to verse one, first five words, am I not an apostle? He is, he is haunted by that and ridiculed by that everywhere he goes. And so he says in um, this passage, oh, I got these backwards, but look at that one verse, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads the grain Here's a picture of, of the oxen. You know, they're working hard. Let them have a little nibble while they're working, yeah? Are you so cruel that you would put a, a muzzle on them? Well, we don't want the grain to be eaten. This is our grain. Well, they're working the grain. Let them eat the grain. These poor things have to salivate through this muzzle while they're starving and working. And you're, don't you feel <laughs> that? And the passage comes from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading the grain. And they lay this out, and Paul lays this out. And then look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But look what Paul says in verse 15. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that I should be done so should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. I deserve it, but I'm not taking it. And if I took it, they would say, Oh, he's in it for the money. He's already his his concern is for the flock, and he knows they're questioning his authority. So he's not going to take any offering. He's just going to do what he does is under the Lord, and his is an act of faith. And that that word travels all over the place. And they, you know, he's renowned of of the things he suffered. Let me share of a few of them for you, just so that uh, you can see this. Um, yeah, here we go. Turn to Second uh, Corinthians chapter one, if you would. Second Corinthians chapter one. Second Corinthians chapter one. Look at verse eight. Paul writing, he says, "For for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure." 
above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Go to chapter four of the same book and drop down to verse eight, Second Corinthians chapter four, verse eight. Paul says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, burdened, despaired, sentence of death, trouble. This is Paul's life. And it gets worse. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And verse 23, he says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure in prison, more frequently in deaths. Often from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked and a night and a day I have been in the deep. Now Paul's saying, I don't get paid. This is this is this is what I get in return for what I give. And I have to endure this in order for you to accept me as an authority in your life. Y'all tracking that? Because it goes back to chapter 9, verse 1 that says, Am I not an apostle? This whole text is about the facts fact that they don't recognize his authority and he's getting the daylights beaten out of them. Every one of the disciples, the apostles is getting a stipend and he willingly doesn't take one because they question his authority. Now, do you know what the pastoral epistles are? They're letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus to teach him how to be pastors. You, you know that? And as he pens these letters, and actually the very last epistle, the very last letter Paul wrote was 2 Timothy before he was beheaded. And he's imparting to Timothy some very wise words on how to shepherd and how to minister. And we're going to take a look at that momentarily. Uh, but I, I want to I wanna go uh, to this, this comparison that Paul uses um, about the games in Corinth. But let's go back to 1 Corinthians 9 so we can take a look at the passage that we are studying. We'll pick up at verse 15 where we left off. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than any one of you should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, I, I, he says, I do have need. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I'm not going to let the money that you don't want to give me hinder what it is I'm supposed to do. So I've just made it a non-issue and I'm moving forward as a tent maker. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. You guys are going to make all kinds of issues. It's going to take away from my authority. I'm just going to avoid it because I have a stewardship to the gospel. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. You guys will question my authority. It's going to continue to question my authority. So 
It's a non-issue. It's like what Abraham said to Lot. Look, Lot, you go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. I don't want this to be between us. If this is the issue that separates me from pouring the gospel into your life and money's the issue, then it's not an issue. I'll let it go. I have every right to receive it. I could enforce it, but I'm not going to allow it to hinder your, your pride to somehow state that I'm not an apostle or have the authority to speak this. I will show you by faith that God's going to meet my needs. I'm going to, I'm going to be, you know, whipped five times. I'm, I'm going to be stoned once. I'm going to be beaten with rods three times. I'm going to be shipwrecked. I'm going to be at night and a day in the deep. I'm going to go through all of it. And, and if that means you're going to receive the gospel, that's what you need to have. I'll do it. And he's, he's irritated by it. Because he's thinking, why does it have to be this way? Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win uh, the more. To the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. What he's saying is, to the Gentiles, I hung out with them. All things are permissible, not all things are profitable. I would eat the food that would be served before me, even if it was pork. I'd be over here and I'd do this. And if I was with the Jews, I wouldn't eat pork. I would do whatever made them comfortable because... I have liberty for those things. I'm not, I'm not under the law. I've been, I've been set free by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to operate in that capacity. And none of you can sit in judgment of me because you want a specific, you know, frame of what a pastor's supposed to be. And, and some of you are Judaizers and some of you are Greeks and you, you, you have different views. And some say you can only have an organ in the church and others say you can only have a piano. And some say no syncopated rhythm. Some people say acapella only. Paul just says, I don't need it. You don't pay me. I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to go where I go. This is the price of of doing things this way. And I don't want to be hindered. He says uh, that I might win those who are without the law. Look at verse 22. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. To the weak, he'd go into the most impoverished areas, and he would eat what they'd have, and he would be just as broke as they are. And he would labor with them as they would labor during the day and he would get to know them. And then he'd step into that culture and he'd be that. And, you know, I was sharing with Catherine the other day. I marveled the first time I met her, she was picking up German like you can't even imagine it. And then I remember one time I called her in Cambodia or she called me. I can't remember. And she's just going off. And is it Kamai? She's just rattling Kamai talking to these kids in the orphanage. I'm like, where did you learn that language? She's just speaking like she's an authority on it. And, and you look at her life. Here's a girl who came from Baghdad, Kentucky. How many kids in your family? 17 kids in her family, Baghdad, Kentucky, and they put the fun in dysfunction, right? And, and, and here she is, she's poured, poured her life into the gospel. She's gone to Cambodia. She's learned the language. She's adopted a Cambodian boy that hindered her from coming back to the States where she couldn't even go on furlough and she wouldn't pay you know, any of the bribes that the government in Cambodia wanted. So she had to stay in Cambodia until, and she finally gets this and her and Joshua have come out here. This is that idea. She became that in order to minister there. And they see that and they're moved by that. And this is the apostle Paul. He says, I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be a partaker of it with you. And then he says this in verse 24, and this is where we get tonight. Well, first let's look at this. I want to bring it back. 
Here in 1 Corinthians 9, look at uh, verse 9. For it is written, the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And then we come to 1 Timothy 5 that Paul wrote to Timothy. This is a pastoral epistle. He uses the same quote from Deuteronomy 25. He says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest may also fear. So what he's saying to Timothy is, Timothy, I don't take a salary, but doggone it, you deserve one. And, and, and the folks at that church, you deserve double honor. What does double honor mean? Well, the idea is, and many people said this, what's the minimum wage of the area? Double it. People are going, whoa, wait a minute. Pastor makes double the minimum wage of the... Why would that be shocking? What is the significance of the call in the ministry? And that's not to say I'm making twice what you're making if you're getting minimum wage but the, or getting median income. But, but why is the word of God supposed to be impoverished? And, and you're welcome to answer that question if you think that. And I'm not going to make fun of you. But the reality is this, is, this is the word of life. And do you know what the attrition rate is for pastors? 70%. More churches close in America than open. We are losing Christendom. Nobody wants to go into the ministry. Because you, you, you stand, I, I'm, I, I've got... I've got appointments every week. Some people come in to tell me you're too political. Other people come in to say you're not political enough. Some people come in to say you don't preach the word. Some people come in to say you don't spend it. I, you get it all. And it's endless. And, and, and folks will come and they'll share things with you and they want you to know about this and they'll call you on Mondays even though, and they'll, they, they, just all the time. And, and you, you gotta be there at 3 a.m. and you gotta be there at 4 a.m. And, and you need to be there at the special occasions. And you know, I, people look at and they go, I don't know how you do what you do. And I look at them and I say, I don't know how you do what you do. I love what I do. And you know why I love what I do? I'm called to do it. I do it for free. You're the suckers who pay me. No, I'm just saying. (laughs) But what Paul's saying is a laborer is worthy of his wages. And the question is, how much do we value somebody who rightly divides the word of truth? How much do we value a church and a community? How much do we value a, a pastor that, you know, just is about God's business? And just to set them free from encumbrances. And, and that's, that's the idea. But look what Paul says in verse 19 to Timothy. He says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. How many witnesses to the apostle Paul being apostle? Well, there are two. Himself and Barnabas. And he can find a few others as well to declare that he's an apostle. And what is he saying? He's saying... If you're going to be up front and everyone's going to be listening to what you're saying, everything you do is going to be scrutinized. Your children will be more strictly judged. Everything you do, whatever you wear, they're going to scrutinize. What you wear, what your wife wears, they'll scrutinize. The way you raise your kids. And I just, I've said this before. My kids are no better. Matter of fact, they're probably worse than your kids. If you expect them to be different as pastor's kids... I will let you down. Everything about our life is more strictly judged. We live in a fishbowl. And that's okay. That comes with the territory. And the Apostle Paul says you'll be more strictly judged. I signed up for it. And, and, and I am to reflect. The Apostle Paul says, as we studied earlier, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
So I do have to set that example. I have to live in that capacity. If somebody's offended, I have to fall on my sword first. And if somebody's angry, I have to listen, have to listen, and serve them. A servant speaks when he's spoken to, offers his opinion when he's asked. Some folks know that. And they come in and they got an ear to bend and they're going to do it. And, and they're going to, you know, play the poor me card and do the, and I've been through it 20 years. I've been through it all. And then you find folks who know how to work you and play you and, and they get a little wiser. And here's the thing that shocks me. The church in America worships youth. They want the young hip pastor with the skinny jeans and the, and I just keep getting bulkier and bulkier. But, but my point is this, I look at, I look at Steve Larson I look at Larry DeWitt. I mean, I can go down the line and right when they get to a place where they're like a fine wine, they're seasoned with all this wisdom, the church gets rid of them. I look at that and I think, what were you thinking? When they got rid of Steve Larson, it devastated our community. He was the guy that started the prayer community. It devastated us. And, and Larry DeWitt, I mean, we were, we were rudderless for the longest time. Now, I love Sean Dorton, but we had to go through Brad Johnson Brad had struggles, but they wanted a guy with really, you know, frosted tips and the whole bit. And I like Brad and I've had good conversations with him, but he himself will share. It, it was a trial and he went through a shipwreck. And my, my point is this, that a pastor who has that kind of wisdom that has experienced all this, I got a call today from Lance Ralston, who's running for city council, second, second district Oxnard. He's a pastor of a church more successful than I am, has been doing ministry a lot longer than I have. He's calling me and I said, Lance, this is a really busy season. We're running 14 candidates. I got stuff going up and down the state. We're moving the church. I, I'm, you know, mayor pro tem. I, I got service tonight. I've got appointments, you know, but you need anything you call me. And here's why I've already walked through that landmine. You don't need to step on any of them. I know where they all are. Call me with any questions. Even if you think you know it, I guarantee you, you don't. Call me. And the relief, I said, you don't have to be blown up like I was. I'm still living. I'm missing some arms and limbs, but I know where they are. I'll show you. You'll get through the landmines, the, the minefield safely. Now, how did I get to this place? I've been around. I've been around. And once he goes through it, he'll be able to show everybody where they are. And we are able to lead others where we ourselves are going too. And the more you've been doing it, the wiser you become. And so this is that idea that Paul's saying, don't receive an accusation against a brother without two or three witnesses, against an elder without two or three witnesses. It is so easy to, instead of self-examine, project. Oh, the reason why the church is going down is because the pastor. Well, it could be that people are receiving an accusation and there's two ways that a church is destroyed. Gossip and flattery. Gossip is, is what you, you wouldn't say to their face, but you'd say behind their back. And flattery is what you'd say to their face, but you wouldn't say behind their back. And both are terrible. And, uh, you know, one of the ones I'm getting recently is, oh, he's spread too thin. He's spread too thin. He's just not preaching. Okay. I, last time I checked, I'm still laboring the same amount of time in the word and, and, and you know, sensing God's call. And I, I feel his pleasure more than I felt in a long time. And I'm, I'm blessed by it. And I love the direction. But you're going to get that. And what's interesting is when that drops, folks come and say, I told them that they shouldn't be doing it. And I want to come and tell you. 
Do you understand how that works? Let me show you, let me show you how gossip ends. Craig, stand up, will you? I'm going to show you how gossip ends. Craig comes up to Rob and he says, Rob, I wanted to tell you that Tom Hunt um, told me uh, that you are ugly and your mother dresses you funny. Would that be fair, Tom? I didn't say your mother dresses <laughs> Okay. <laughs> now here's how gossip ends. I go, Craig, I know Tom and he's a good guy. Why don't the two of us go and talk to him together? Now, one of two things is going to happen. Craig's going to at least realize that he's the one who made it up. And he's going to go, no, 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 you don't want to talk to Tom. I go, no, 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 I'm going to talk to Tom. Now he's worried because Tom's going, I never said that. Now Craig's going to be in trouble. Or Craig will go, you know what? Okay, because I want to see reconciliation. And we sit down, Tom, and Tom goes, yeah, I did say that. But you know what? I'm just frustrated with you. Now we get to the issue, right? And it's dead. But if you allow it to ferment, it becomes tragic. Thanks. That was really good how you just stood there. And... <laughs> I was going to walk with you over to Tom, but... but you see how it dies? Fungus only grows in the dark. And those are the destructive aspects. And, and so Paul is telling Timothy, by experience, having gone through this with the church at Corinth, he lays it out to him. Those who are sitting rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. We, we're not going to let that happen. We're not going to let that happen. Because if the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. And every church is imploded by the destruction of the ministry. Now, if they're caught in an offense and you have two or three witnesses, they have to deal with it. And we've gone through that with church discipline. And that was not too, too long ago, right? So we have greater protection, but we also have greater responsibility, as a pastor, I have great protection, but also as a pastor, I have greater consequences, right? Okay. Now we'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race, and this is where Paul picks up after this whole picture of partakers, and he uses this illustration of running a race because everyone in Corinth knows about the Isthmus Games, it's like every year they hold the Olympics in your town. Every year they hold the Isthmus Games in Corinth. Everyone knows. And these athletes have been training for 10 months. They all know about the athletes. They're all aware of how it works. So Paul says, I'm going to use an illustration just like Jesus did. He takes an earthly illustration, puts it alongside a heavenly truth. That's called a parable. So he lays this out. He says, I have just covered in 23 verses something of great concern to me that you got to take care of your ministers. And he says, do not do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? And they know this because each of the comp competitors would, it started out with a celery branch, celery branches, and then it went to like pine needles after it went from um, olive branches and then it went to pine needles and it was a perishable crown. And, and you know, you'd bring it home and go, look, I won the Isthmus games. I got a you know, a pine wreath and you'd put it on the wall and then it'd be like Christmas and the thing would dry out and fall on your wife. Like get that off the wall. And that really great prize. And the other day I was going through all of our stuff as we were moving. I found this box uh, of all my swimming awards and I, one of the coolest awards. I got third in the entire United States, U S nationals. I got third place, U S nationals, four mile open water swim. And that's a big medal. Third place. I was the fastest person, a four mile swim in the entire United States. I had that medal and I was like, wow, look at that medal. And I turn around and it's all like fading and it's all tarnished. I'm like, that was really impressive to me back then. And it's like, I don't even know where it is now. It's like, let's just get rid of it. 
Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, a third place U.S. national. Okay, you're not impressed. Perishable (laughs) crown. But we for an imperishable crown. Paul is saying we're all competing in a sense in the world because we want to elevate ourselves. For what? Something that's going to be in a box that your kids will find and go, yeah, great. What do we do with that? And really, I remember <clears throat> Flag of Our Fathers, the, the man who found his, um, his father's box in the attic after he died. And he was the corpsman who was uh, on the flag raising of, on Mount Suribachi in Iwo Jima. Didn't know anything about his dad. He just knew every year uh, they would call to see if his father was there because they wanted to do an interview. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he'd, he'd tell him, uh, you know, he, he's not here. He's a, he was an undertaker. He was a mortician. He says he's, he's on a call. And they would always, they knew the line. And they, they, mostly kids didn't know why they'd be calling his dad. And they just kind of hung up because he never took an interview. And when his dad died, he went up to go look through his things. And he finds this Navy cross, second only to the Medal of Honor. He finds the pictures. He traveled the country selling war bonds as one of the guys in this phenomenal picture by the photographer won a Pulitzer Prize, you know, that picture of Iwo Jima that the whole monument is, is, is designed with. And that was him. And he's looking at these medals and he just, they, they were just in a box in the attic. Like it was nothing. And, and over time, people forget what they're about. And Paul's saying significance of that, it's perishing, but you are striving. The reason why I do what I do, Paul says, is I am seeking an imperishable crown. And that crown is you. And the word crown is Stephanos. It's, it's the victor's crown. It's only given to one person when they win. And he says, but we are, are operating for an imperishable crown. Now these guys are swimmers. And one of the things you notice about them is they don't have a stitch of hair on their upper body because they compete in such a way as to win. And they shave all the hair off their body. This is what we did. We'd have shave down events and you would be slick as can be so you wouldn't have any resistance or drag in the water to go faster. And you run in such a way, swim in such a way as to win. And they understood athletes. They understood how that is. And to the extent that they'd go to win these events and for 10, uh, 10 months they would practice. Most of these guys, if you make it to nationals, you have to be sponsored. The Olympic Committee will sponsor you, especially if you're a gymnast. You need a club to sponsor you. Typically, you'll get a scholarship to a university, and then they'll have summer league programs where they give you a job on the side so you can get some income, so you can continue to practice and make the Olympic squad or the national squad. The word athlete itself comes from the ancient Greek word meaning competitor for a prize. And there are around 50 regularly scheduled sets of athletic games in the ancient Mediterranean, about 500 B.C., the most prestigious games remained the Stephanic, Stephaninic games, uh, meaning the crown games. That's where they get the, the St- Stephaninic crown. And the, the prizes were solely crowns. But, interesting, crown-only games, Olympic games, location was in Olympia, prize, wild olive leaf, palm branch in the right hand. Every four years, the Isthmus games, located in Corinth, uh, the prize was pine and then celery leaf crown, palm branch in the right hand every two years, April and May. But here's what's interesting. The Olympic oath ancient athletes took required 10 solid months of training beforehand and a month training in the city of Ellis, a hefty time requirement for a day laborer or impoverished artisan. Athletes were then dependent upon private patrons who gave them st- stipends or upon athletic guilds to provide support. 
What Paul is saying through this illustration is they ran for this leaves that will go brown and I'm running for you. The crown that will lay at the feet of Jesus, the only thing going to heaven is people. They were sponsored by patrons. I'm to be sponsored by patrons, but you don't recognize me as an athlete. Am I not an apostle, Paul says, and he's having to contend and he uses this illustration. Do you not know that those who run? And then he says, uh, let's go to the passage. Do you not know that those, verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable one. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. What he's saying is, I don't want to be disqualified, so I'm putting the whole patron thing aside. I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection. I'm irritated. I'm frustrated. I'm tired of beating, beating up. Five times I've been whipped. Three times I've been beaten with a rod, right? One time I've been ship, shipwrecked. I've been perils at robbers, perils at sea, perils, 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 day and a night in the deep. But I have buffeted my body and I run not with uncertainty, not as one who beats the air. And they, they can visualize all this because they watch the athletes day in and day out practicing and doing the different wrestling moves. And, you know, if you, you watch that Irish guy who's an MMA um, McGregor, you see this guy going through motions and he's taking all these different dance moves and you're just watching him practice and you're thinking, wow, this is what Paul is alluding to and all of them have it in this picture in their head. And he's just saying, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should not become disqualified. And what he's saying is this. Am I not an apostle? I know I am. You don't buy it. I'll do what I do without you patronizing me because the crown I'm running for is imperishable. And if I have to do this, I'll do it. If I have to endure this, I'll endure it. I am buffeting my body. They're buffeting it for me. The rods, the whipping, I'll take it. But I do it for a crown that's not going to go on the wall. And he's frustrated by it. Right? He's so frustrated by it. Let's go back. He's so frustrated by it that he writes to Timothy. Let the elders who rule well be counted of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Timothy, I didn't take it, but you know what? You deserve it. And tell him. The labor is worthy of his wages. Don't receive an accusation against an elder except for from two or three witnesses. This frustrated him and he wanted Timothy to know it. He uses the same thing he used in 1 Corinthians 9, this muzzle the ox. He lays it out. He uses the illustration with athletics and how his body is buffeted and he's not willing to receive compensation or, or have a patron. And then I want to take us, here it is again, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sitting rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. And then I want to bring you to this. And this is what we'll close with tonight. I've always thought this. Well, let me correct that. There was a matronly woman who opened my eyes to this, and I can't, I can't deny it the more I study it. 
I'm looking at this passage, chapter 9, I'm looking at this, and I'll show you some others, that bring it home. Paul's hurt. Am I not an apostle? Right? You guys got that? The whole illustration he lays out, what he says to Timothy. Now let's go to this. He writes another epistle that we'll get to later, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger, which is the word for angel, an angel of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He has got this thing hovering over him. An angel of Satan. And who is the accuser of the brethren? Satan, thank you. He's the accuser of the brethren. What is the accusation that's always leveled on Paul? You're not an apostle. You're not an apostle. As angel of Satan... Is it an angelic being with a pitchfork and a, you know, and a t- tail and horns? Probably, probably somebody in the church. And this church has room for that. Not this church, but the church at Corinth has room for that. You got a guy sleeping with his father's wife. You got people getting drunk at the community table. You have people questioning his authority. This church is putting, like I said earlier, the fun and dysfunction. They're a mess. And there are people in that church going, you don't have any authority. You. Now, I said this earlier today in a staff meeting. The fascinating thing about churches is every church is filled with sheep and wolves and chimera. Chimera is a hybrid between two breeds, which means they're half sheep and half wolf. And they're always switching back and forth, morphing. It's like, funky one. That's the chimera. And, and, and how does it happen? It's like this. You're sitting in the service, and, and it's happened to me. You're sitting in the service, and you have had a rotten day. Your finances are bad. You, you've had an issue with your spouse. Your kids are out of control. Financial struggles. Just add a couple of scenarios in there. And now you, you haven't read the Bible. You're, you're totally unspiritual. You're distant from God. You're coming to church. It's becoming effort instead of enjoyment. And you're just sitting there and everything the pastor says irritates you. And you are picking it apart. You're just having roast pastor. He's so, he just never gets into the word and he never studies and he just doesn't do that. He's too political. Right? I'm just saying things that you might be saying about me. But that's what he's doing. <laughs> or she's doing. And you're just, you're just feeding on that. And your flesh, flesh is frustrated. And all of a sudden, the, the, the tenderness of the joy of your, your walk with God is, is giving way to this anger. And the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. You're not patient. You're not long-suffering. You're not endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You're, you're entertaining accusation. You're entertaining gossip and slander and, and, and um, flattery. And you're smiling, going, oh, praise the Lord, Pastor, while all the time you're not saying that. But, and this is all happening. And you're morphing. And then you become that person that you never wanted to be. 
and you're bitter and you're angry and you're isolated and people don't want to be around you and things are getting worse and you're frustrated and now you become that cancerous thing where you're just filling everybody with your anger, right? Is that just me who's been that way? Because none of you are looking at me like you can see this. We all are capable of that. Yes? I can't tell you how many times I've sat through a pa- I don't go to I don't go to pastor's conferences anymore. And here's the reason why. I am so competitive, because that's what I was in high school and college. I'm so competitive that when I sit at a pastor's conference, I measure the room going, okay, so this is the field. I can beat them. Oh, they're not that good. I could do better than that. Oh, I could do and it's it's awful for my flesh. I don't take an offering because it's awful for my flesh. If I had the ability to preach a big tithe or a big offering, I know what I'm capable of. I know the wolf that lies inside me. And, and I would love to be able to go to pastor's conferences. It's like a bar to me. I can't go. I'm, I'm, I'm a competitive holic. It's not them. It's me. And they go, why don't you go? I, I'd love to go. I just can't. And some may understand, some may not. But one-on-one in relationship, that is a joy I have. And I love to reach out to the pastors locally and to minister to them and to have that connection. And Paul had this problem. He had a thorn in the flesh that was given to him, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times and it might depart from me. You know how many times I've asked the Lord, please, can I go to a pastor's conference? I sign up for him. Tony signs me up for him. We pay it. I don't go. Waste of money. And the Apostle Paul is saying, God, take this from me. And some people say, oh, this thorn in the side that buffeted him. You know, what was it? This is some of the ideas of what they thought the thorn in Paul's side was. Severe earaches and headaches. That was Tertullian who said it. Colossians said it was epilepsy. Recurrent malaria was Ramsey. Adversaries of the word was Christosom. Fleshly temptation. John Calvin said that. He was probably the closest. An inflammation of the eye, McGarvey. Blasphemous thoughts of the devil, Lightfoot. He's close. uh, Stuttering speech. Poor eyesight, according to Galatians, because he would have, you know, notice how big my signature is. Persecution. What was the thorn in Paul's side? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not an apostle? God said, to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Why did he have infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses? Because he wouldn't take an offering. And why wouldn't he take an offering? Hello? Why wouldn't he take a patron? Did you guys come to the service? What's that? He didn't want that encouragement. He didn't want that getting in the way of what? Why did he deserve an offering? Let's go back to First Corinthians or First Corinthians nine, verse one. I'm an apostle. You doubt it? Fine. I won't take an offering, but I'm going to do the work of an apostle. That's going to cause me infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses. 
I'll be poor with those who are poor. I'll be a Jew to those who are Jew. I'll be a Gentile to those who are Gentile. I'll do all this. And when I'm weak, I'll be strong. I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Look at that. I underline it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I'm nothing. You guys, you guys don't even see it. And I, I want you to see it. And God, why are, you te- why are you making these people say these things to me? Because Paul, if you walked around with that title of apostle, with the seven languages you speak and the doctorates you probably possess and the background you have of the memorization of most of the Torah and your legal brain, you, your head would be so big nobody could do anything with it. So that's why, and no, nobody's going to recognize you. You don't get the title, but you get the job. Oh, okay. All right. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. I never took a dime from you. I wouldn't have burdened to you. And you won't even recognize me as an apostle. You accuse me of not having authority. It doesn't matter. You don't have to recognize me, but I'm going to love you. You don't have to support me, but I won't be a burden to you. I got another crown I'm working for. I'll buff it. I'll be beaten. I'll be whipped. I'll be shipwrecked. I'll be robbed. I'll be whatever is necessary so that this church would be solid Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty and before honor is humility. You know how you get humility? Through humiliation. (laughs) Do you know who I am? I love that. A man comes out, his flight's been delayed. They take him off the plane. He says, I have to get to New York tonight. You don't understand. There's no other flights leaving, sir. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? The lady picks it up and she says, ladies and gentlemen, we have a man here who doesn't know who he is. (laughs) And I, I travel, I see that all the time, just the arrogance. And nobody wants to honor them. Their funerals are usually void of people attending. And if they do, they're just wanting their inheritance. They're waiting after the funeral to get the will read. But before honor, real honor, where people absolutely adore you, you know, Chuck Smith's funeral was pretty remarkable. But the funeral that I believe surpassed Chuck's, who is his second in command? The the Marine? Romaine. Pastor Romaine. He wrote a book called Second. Nobody knows Romaine. And when the pastors of the Calvary Chapel movement were speaking at Romaine's funeral, every one of them sobbed uncontrollably. Romaine was an ex-DI, drill instructor. 
And, and, and Chuck would be about doing the stuff, and Romaine just stayed to it. They called him Pastor Romaine, but he was never, he was invisible. As a matter of fact, he went to Chuck one day, and he says, Chuck, you mind if I take the day off? Romaine never asked for time off. He was always there before Chuck arrived, and he would always leave after Chuck left. And he was shocked. He goes, what do you need a day off for? He says, my wife's funeral. Chuck didn't even know she was sick. He would finish his work, go home, and care for his wife who was dying of cancer. Nobody had a clue. The man never sought title. He never sought anything. And everyone honored him and loved him, and they sobbed at his funeral. And the Calvary Chapel movement, no one knows Romaine. I don't even know Romaine's first name. That might be his first name. And yet everyone adored this man because of what he did in their lives. And you know, Chuck starved his assistant pastors. Starved them. I heard stories from Don McClure who served Chuck. I can't imagine what Romaine got paid. But why did he do it? For a perishable crown or an imperishable crown? Paul would write to Timothy... The very last epistle he ever wrote, Paul would be dead months later, beheaded. He says to Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also if anyone competes in athletics and he brings it back, the same story he gave to the church at Corinth because they understood it and he had given this to Timothy, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must first, must be first to partake of the crops. And then, as we read earlier, he says, you don't muzzle the ox while he treads the grain. He repeats it to Timothy. And then he gets to the conclusion of this epistle. He's in a prison. He's freezing cold. It's winter. He's going to be dead soon. And he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says, I never, people can say, oh, poor Paul. But in the course of a given week, how many times is his name referred to in the history of the world? What significance has this man had in the life of the church? He says to Timothy, his final words, be diligent to come to me quickly, Timothy, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring, bring him with you, for he's useful to me for ministry. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. He's freezing cold. And when you come, when you come, and the books, especially the parchments, I love this about Paul's life. He signs off and he's dead a few months later. This is a man that has written every epistle we read and study. He's written the letter to the first, first and second Corinthians. There's even a third Corinthian we've never even found. He wrote Galatians, Ephesians. He's just, he's, he's Thessal, Thessalonians, first, second. This guy is prolific. It's established the church, showed us how to operate as a church lived this, never was called an apostle, was rejected by the church, imparted it to Timothy. They take this gospel through the world. He's dying. 
This is a man who had the scriptures memorized, memorized. He, he should have been given more honor than anyone's ever been given and his life was obscure. And as he's writing this, isolated, everyone's left him. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Crescens gone to, uh, to Galatia. Luke is the only one left. He's his doctor. He's binding up all these wounds as he's bleeding out. Mark, who had abandoned him earlier, has finally come back around because he's seen it through Barnabas' eyes. He says, bring him with you. I want to reconcile that. He says, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. He won't bring it, but maybe you will. Carpus has given up on me. And at the end of his life, and this is what I say to the older folks, which I'm one of them. How many Bible studies have you been in? How many church services have you been in? How many times have you read the Bible cover to cover? And the one thing he wants at the end of his life is he says, bring the books and the parchments. I mean, give it a rest, Paul. Give it a rest. But that's his whole life. I want this to be in you. And I don't care if I have to be beaten, shipwrecked, and ignored and be buffeted by you never calling me the title that I richly deserve that was given to me by the Lord himself. And I don't need your praise. I don't need your adoration. I certainly don't need your money because what the Lord gave me, I'm gonna do. And the only strength I find in the midst of Carpus leaving me and all these other dudes, the parchments and the books. And one of the things that kept Paul from being bitter was he never got his nose out of the book. And oftentimes, the times where we are morphing into bitterness and division and strife is when we're not spending time in the word. And if you don't like it here, I'm okay if you go, but wherever you end up, you take care of that minister. We are dropping like flies. Now, I'm not saying, I, Michelle and I are the most beloved, not beloved, we're the most loved and cared for. I mean, this church is exceptional in caring for its ministers. And I truly mean that. This, this is not a study to tell you guys you're not doing enough. You, 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 you love the ministers in this church and their families deeply. The things you've done for us and cared for us all the years, I've never been in want. And it is a precious fellowship in that regard. And seldom do you hear gossip and if you do and it's addressed they, they, it's always another issue and they, there's an apology and vice versa this, this is a church that endeavors to keep the union of the spirit and the bond of peace and what a great example uh, I'll close with this there he is I just thought that was a cool picture I love, I, I love this as he's just reflecting on he's in prison everyone else is being cared for he's starving and he's licking his wounds He's still writing. We believe he wrote Hebrews, but we don't know. He says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I can just see Paul writing that. He despi- Jesus was never honored as God. Why do I need to be honored as an apostle? It's nice if I were, but yeah. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. 
Just, he, he's just saying, run that race without any, any encumbrance. Don't let the bitterness stop you. Just keep doing it. We close with this. There he is, Eric Little. Eric Little. I've shared this with you, but I'm going to do it again. I love this about the man. Eric Little, love the Lord. He took a lot of grief to run in the Olympics. He was from Scotland. Um, he's a gold medalist runner. He's also a Christian missionary. He was born in China to Scottish missionary parents. He attended boarding school near London, spending time when possible with his family in Edinburgh. Afterwards, he attended the University of Edinburgh. 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris. Little refused to run in the heats of his favored 100 meters because they were held on Sunday. He wouldn't run on the Sabbath. Instead, he competed in the 400 meters held on a weekday, a race that he won. They said he wouldn't. He returned to China in 1925 to serve as a missionary teacher. Most of the people that he, he was with never knew he was an Olympic gold medalist. Aside from two furloughs in Scotland, he remained in China until his death in a Japanese civilian internment camp in 1945. He died of starvation because he was always giving his food to the other people. And, and most of the people he fed never knew he was an Olympian, let alone a gold medal winner, let alone a person that changed uh, the hearts of his teammates because of his fervency for the Lord. I just, I, when I think of Paul, I think of Eric Little. 